welcome to episode 111 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is David Moscrop. He's a columnist whose work has appeared in the Washington Post and Jacobin. He's the host of the Open to Debate podcast, the author of the book Too Dumb for Democracy, and the proud parent of a new Substack. David, welcome back to the show. It's so great to be here, for, and, and no less for the haunting season. So I'm particularly happy to be here for this very special spooky episode. This is spooky season. As we speak, there are Frankensteins, Wolfmans, Mummies, and uh, obviously Draculas. And the film that we're going to be talking about tonight is a very good film to spotlight. It's a film that turns 30 years old this year, but has barely aged a day. Francis Ford Coppola's lavish adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves. And uh, and I hasten to add Tom Waits. I love, whenever Tom Waits shows up, I, I just know that I'm going to love something. I remember... And, and there's always this moment of, of what you, you know, you watch, you're looking and you're watching, and you're like, is that Tom Waits? <laughs> you know, when the dead don't die, yeah. you know, he plays like the hermit in the woods. I'm like, of course that's Tom Waits. It's got to be Tom Waits. And I actually think that he, in a sense, steals the film because I think he's kind of like a perfect Renfield. And, uh, you know, it's truly, truly. And Gary Yules, mm-hmm. who, who sneaks in, in his sort of smarmy, classic self uh, it just the cast is is truly extraordinary yeah a murderer's row of uh, of people Every, everyone from billy campbell who was kind of big at the time because he was in the rocketeer to oh, richard yeah. e grant to sadie frost who plays lucy monica bellucci shows up as one of Dracula's yes, babe wives <laughs> that's right it's a really deep cast but but you know one of the fascinating things is aside from you know gary oldman is a is a superb dracula but nobody steals the film you don't come away thinking uh, this is the actor in the film and there's nobody else like everybody who plays their character plays it quite quite well um even though tom waits i think stands out as renfield that that doesn't he doesn't eat up the movie as Renfield. And I, it's a pretty extraordinary uh, thing because, I mean, I, I don't know if you get that much these days anymore with a big budget movie like that. I, I don't know. One thing that I love about this movie, it's 30 years old. Almost everything that we see in this movie is in-camera special effects. A very genius idea that Coppola had when he decided to follow up Godfather 3 with this movie was that he wanted to make a movie based on a novel that was written in 1897, but to use film techniques from the from the beginning of cinema, which was also happening at the same time. So he wanted to make sure that he tried to use the visual effects of movies, which was a, a distillation of magic in the first place. He wanted to basically use magic tricks and what he referred to as naive visual effects, which I thought was a very nice way of putting it. And I mean, it's extraordinary because as, as we've been talking about, it holds up, you know, 30 years later, it holds up. It doesn't look cheesy. It doesn't look fake. Um, it isn't, it, it's a melodrama of a film, but the, the effects aren't, um, you know, melodramatic in that cringy way, which is extraordinary. And I was thinking about it a little bit in the context of Jurassic Park, uh, because Jurassic Park, the first one also holds up in terms of effects. You go watch it and you're like, oh, this is this is extraordinary. Whereas, you know, a couple of years later, the CGI movies look terrible. And 30 years later, the Marvel uh, films also look ridiculous in, in many cases. Right. And they're contemporary. <laughs> they were made last week. Uh, but, but, you know, 30 years later, um, it really does hold up. And 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try something here. We'll we'll see if it works. Keep it in the thing out of the way because I want people to know this is what we do out here. We come out here every night and we just try our best. But it made me think a little bit of of the film noir era, which is something I absolutely adore, and it's the the, you know, the types of movies I watch the most. Um, and they hold up extraordinarily well too because they're premised on you know very limited special effects to the extent there's even anything quote unquote like a like an effect uh, and just simply a really good story good di- good dialogue and, and great acting and uh, this movie has tons of that too and, and it's in a sense i think what what keeps it alive 30 years later and will probably keep it alive for another 30 years still right vampires do exist this one we fight this one we face can take on many forms he is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is... The devil's concubine! Dracula! Join me in eternal life. Dracula was a specific kind of vision on screen until this movie. And then all of a sudden you could do all kinds of vampires and all kinds of uh, depictions of Dracula. This one is trying very hard to be um, sort of a semi-historical saga of Dracula going back to the beginning of Dracula's origins as Vlad the Impaler. And this is all stuff that I don't know so well, but you're a connoisseur. Um, Can you tell the listener how Vlad the Impaler became Dracula? Is that explainable? Well, it's explainable in the sense that, you know, the vampires as a a concept are hundreds and hundreds of years old. I mean, there's been lots of stories of of vampires and they've taken on different forms in, in culture and then they emerge in literature. Um, you know, in in the Victorian era, they really sort of pop, and there's a handful of of you know stories and novels that are written about them. But the sort of definitive vampire novel becomes Bram Stoker's Dracula in the, towards the turn of the century. But he himself is influenced by a book called uh, a novella uh, called Carmilla by, by Lefanu. And it's extraordinarily fascinating. I just I just read it um, for a piece I was writing for the Globe on vampires, and uh, you know, it is dr- dripping with sexuality and anxieties of the Victorian area, and it is it has lesbian vampires. Uh, and this is written, you know, nearly three decades before Stoker writes. It's about 26 years before Stoker's novel and influenced him. But it isn't a sort of preachy or judgmental take on uh, le- uh, on sexuality and vampires. It, it, it ends up being a sort of you know, cautionary tale about the the threat of, of sexuality and attraction and so on, but not a sort of particularly like anti-lesbian piece, which is extraordinary because it's written in the latter half of the 19th century. Then we get, uh, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, uh, it tries a little bit to, to have a bit of an historical element later that sort of teased out. Uh, it's it's uh, through the ne- through the later century and it gives it a sort of historical weight that gives it a kind of like, feeling that it's embedded in history, that it comes from somewhere, that it comes from this uh, historical figure who, um, you know, fought off the Turks and was let down by Christianity and 
rebelled against it and it was was became undead as a consequence and that's what uh Coppola does in, in Dracula just sort of takes this I, this idea that's latent in the vampire's history and uh, doubles down on it and truly turns this character into a kind of uh you know there's a den of geek piece on this that, that we saw that sort of says well you know this in fact turns him into a kind of anti-hero um which which you don't see you know in in the novel dracula is very much uh, a villain <laughs> it's meant to be a villain and that's not really not meant to be um that's not meant to be ambiguous the, the novel sort of manichaean there's a good and there's a bad there's a light and there's a dark and that gets then confused in the latter half of the uh, next century yeah, the Dracula got uh, reinvented once again in the 30s uh, when Universal made their Dracula film with Bela Lugosi. And then for the longest time, that was the only kind of story of Dracula that you got in movies. Um, yeah, and it's sort of almost like gentleman vampire, right? And that, that was a platonic idea of what a vampire looks like. And I say, you know, if I say to you, picture Count Dracula in your head right now, you're picturing someone probably with dark hair, with a widow's peak. Um, you know, pale skin, long fangs, uh, with a cape, uh, wearing uh, basically a tuxedo, <laughs> yeah. right? and that's that's Lugosi's Dracula, right? Uh, in sort of in the way that the same time that you know we had a this idea of what Frankenstein looks like emerges, right? Right, in, in the classic Platonic idea of Frankenstein, but uh, that isn't exactly what was meant in the literature, but it's sort of taken off. But this was the, the you know the movie the. the what we're talking about upset a lot of that and incidentally uh, sexualized it in an intense way that would later pave the way for a lot more of that. Some of it campy in the sort of twilight angsty, you know, um, teen uh, film lit style, mm-hmm. but then also in the kind of melodramatic steamy interview with the vampire reboot that that's now on AMC, which is, you know, ridiculous, but also entertaining. Uh, but but I think really draws on that couple of history of an intensely sexualized uh, vampire and a love story. And then all of a sudden it becomes a love story because there's plenty of, of sexuality in the novel, but it's not meant to be a love story. And it's not a love story. It's in fact, you know, t- uh, an attempt by Victorians to work out all of their repressions and anxieties of, of you know, especially around sexuality in that uh, in that time. And now it's just, you know, sort of blatant. Uh, you know, effectively romance uh, novel put to screen, right? When I was a kid in the 70s, there was a sexy Dracula movie that came out with Frank Langella as Dracula. That movie struck a chord with me because it was very horny. The Dracula was sexy (laughs) in the movie. The women were sexy in the movie. Uh, This was a version of Dracula that hadn't really been done in films. Like even the super handsome Christopher Lee is not supposed to be super sexy in any of no. his Dracula movies, nor was Lugosi, obviously your mileage may vary. Yes. Course. Yes. Sure. But, but uh, Langella sort of brought the idea of the earthy, sexy Dracula, maybe a sort of studio 54 version of Dracula. Um, and this movie cranks that to 11 in terms of uh, the depiction of Dracula, even though uh, many of the, per- of the personas that Gary Oldman takes as Dracula in this movie are, you know, like the wizened old man who looks more like Emperor Palpatine than uh, a sex god. But we also see a sort of a very, very handsome version of Dracula, but not sort of conventionally handsome. But the whole movie around him is extremely horny. Uh, mm-hmm. This sort of maybe dates back to, you know, 
there's some horn dog material in a in a bunch of his movies, and uh, he kind of lets it rip this time. I mean, he really does. I mean, it is it is an erotic movie. It's it's fundamentally erotic, and and you know there is the kind of like classic. There's still an element of the Victorian anxiety. Uh, insofar as as Jonathan Harker, played by Keanu Reeves, is seduced by the succubi, you know, by vampires' brides, and so there is that, and that's sort of meant to be slightly judgmental because later Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing sort of brings up this, you know, when you were unfaithful uh, to your wife with these women, you know, did you get did you drink their blood? You know, there is a sort of that same tension that is reminiscent of the of the book and the Victorian anxieties that it was based on, but then. There's also a love story between, you know, Mina, Winona Ryder, and and Dracula, Gary Oldman, and it's um, intensely romantic. But also, it um, you know draws on that that sort of antihero idea of Dracula, where you know they're star-crossed lovers, as as One Piece puts it. And so, you know, that's also sexual in a, in a way, but in a sort of romantic way. Whereas the the Brides of Dracula is more of an erotic thing. But then the whole thing is just dripping with this, and you know, Lucy, the character of Lucy Westerner. Um, w- which is the um, Sadie Frost plays her is also intensely sexualized, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and basically nude throughout most of the film, uh, gratuitously so, but in a, but in a way that is meant to sort of say this woman is being seduced by vampires because the whole draw into vampirism is is sort of cast as as an allegory for seduction, right? And that process plays out as as quite a literal seduction. Um, and it creates a kind of tension. I mean, I say gratuitous, but gratuitous by, you know, 1990s standards. Now that would be just post game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing gratuitous pretty, you know, just, by, the, the scale is just off so much now that it doesn't make any sense to, to try to even score them against one another. But, but it also, but, but I will say this in closing on this point, it's all, I think in service of, of the narrative, right? So I, I don't think it's particularly wasteful uh, because it does fit the narrative. Yeah, and it's also a very smart fusing of of Coppola, who wanted to use old techniques to tell an old story, but he also wanted the modern sensibilities of sexiness, violence, gore. Uh, I don't think this movie, though, is particularly scary. I'm in awe of the technique throughout and the artifice throughout, but like, I don't know if I'd be diving under my seat while I was watching this movie. I don't know how you feel about it. It's, it's sort of, I I mean, I hate using this word, but sometimes it's just appropriate. It's just atmospheric, right? It does capture a kind of Gothic atmosphere, uh, especially the stagecoach scenes where they're sort of racing across Transylvania. Uh, You know, Castle Dracula is extraordinary atmospheric. There's some great effects around Dracula's shadow, uh, that's sort of chasing Jonathan Harker around the room a little bit in one scene, whereas Dracula's facing him, the shadows off in a different direction. And, and that's, you know, atmospheric, but not scary, not scary in the sense that your uh, like a thriller would be scary or an old slasher film would be scary or something like that. It's a different kind of tension. So no, I don't think it's scary, but it is a bit gory. I mean, there is a sort of, uh, heads exploding, heads are chopped off, blood is seeping out of all sorts of different places, human and not. So there is a sort of gory element to it that is that is a little bit over the top, but but again, in, in a sense that that ultimately you know serves the melodrama of the story fairly fairly well, and it's not super cheesy or anything like that. And um, 
uh, which is again pr- pretty extraordinary. I, I don't, you know, today I don't think uh, you you could necessarily make one uh, make it like that. Today they'd be uh, asking for a lot less blood. One of the problems with the Morbius movie, I don't know if you caught up to Morbius, a recent vampire movie. I is, couldn't. <laughs> I, I watched it so you didn't have to. That's a service <laughs> that I provide for my listeners. Thank you. Um, there's almost no actual blood spilling in the movie. We see bags of blood and things like that, and but he's it's not a particularly bloody movie. Contrast that with like the first 10 minutes of Blade from the late 90s. <laughs> yes and i mean and blade which is i mean a, a hell of a, a hell of a vampire movie i mean truly one of the I, I quite like it but also you know interview with the vampire on amc is extraordinarily gory <laughs> you know it, it is they, they didn't hold back on it and um you know if you, you watch the the first episode which i would say to folks go go watch it um it's definitely worth at least watching the first and watch it to the end there's a scene at the end of that in the church that is a little bit reminiscent of the Coppola movie and they do not hold back. They they've decided what they're going to be, but here's the thing. They're not trying to sell action figures. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple of uh, merchandise spinoffs for this movie. I found out that there was a Dracula pinball machine. (laughs) I haven't seen one out in the wild. I, it's got to be somewhere, maybe House of Targ in Ottawa, or yeah. I, I don't know. It might be Imagine having like the Anthony Hopkins uh, pinball machine in the basement. I, uh, speaking of you know, folks who are great, I mean, you know, I remember um, seeing him in that movie, and he—it's funny because he—he—if you were—he looks the same to me, sort of between 1992 and like 2012. To me, Anthony Hopkins for that 20 years just doesn't change. He, he does, and he plays Von Helsing, and he plays him in such a convincing way of a sort of eccentric. Uh, Dutch, you know, vampire hunting professor. And, but there's a certain, you know, subtlety to him that you then lose when Van Helsing becomes a character in his own right. And you get like the Van Helsing movie, which is truly, truly atrociously <laughs> bad. Um, but, you know, I, there, it's funny because it, it, he also provides a little bit of, of comic relief in a really dry way. You know, there's this one scene where they've decided that they've, Lucy's become a vampire and she's engaged to be married uh, to one of the three suitors from the novel. And they've got to make sure that she's, she's dead. And, and, you know, Von Helsing says to, uh, to her, her fiance, you know, oh, we're not going to do anything untowards. We're just going to cut off her head and put a stake through her heart. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and he's like, I, I kind of want to have a beer with this guy, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a he's a he's a cool customer. I like the scene where he's uh, interrogating Jonathan and with Mina sitting next to them at the restaurant about him getting it on with the three succubi. <laughs> eating eating incidentally a roast beef, right? He's cutting into this sort of blood red roast beef, which to me was a really interesting cool detail is that they're having, you know, I I, I don't uh, I try never to overanalyze these things or to to think that there's a certain level of, of detail or thought that goes into it beyond what is just there. But I do think it's interesting enough note that they're eating this bloody roast beef while having this conversation about these vampires that come and suck your blood. Yeah. Welcome to my home. 
enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Harcourt, to my house. Come here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a couple of the actors in this movie. You have to love Gary Oldman's uh, resume that this is a man who's played Sid Vicious, Lee Harvey Oswald, <laughs> Beethoven, and Dracula, <laughs> and Winston Churchill. And Commissioner Gordon. And Commissioner, and Commissioner Gordon. Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's quite young in this movie. He, you know, he would have been in his early 30s when he's, when he's filming this. And uh, I think he was born in the you know, late fifties, 58, I think. And so he's what, 34 in this movie. And, and they, they age him, you know, fairly well. I mean, the makeup is, is quite good. And so at times he's meant to play this sort of, you know, age, you know, unknown, timeless vampire who's been around for centuries. And other times he's meant to be a sort of like gentleman count of, of the late 19th century. And so the, that transformation really works because again, he, He's, he's quite young, um, but there are these mannerisms that you see in the movie that then I think, oh, he, that, that's Commissioner Gordon right there. I remember that from Batman Begins. Oh, my God. Uh, the, you know, of course, people watching 1992 didn't have quite as much baggage because he was sort of you know, slightly younger, a little, a little less iconic. Um, but you can see there's these moments. So when folks go back and watch it, you'll see some of these things. Uh, but there's a there's a certain charm to it. He also, uh, when he was the uh, dashing, top-hatted Dracula in a couple of scenes, he sort of seemed to, he reminded me a little bit of Prince. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it might be the facial hair a little bit. Yeah, like early 90s Prince, like uh, Diamonds and Pearls era Prince. Yeah, svelte, he's svelte, and he's got some facial hair, and and he's got a certain mannerism to him. And yeah, I, I could see that. There's no indication that someday he would become... Serious black, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe um, there was. I, I found out that Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder did not get along during the film. They were very uh, pleased to be working with each other in pre-production, but during production, something happened between the two of them and they did not want to be on set together. They worked together and got through it, and apparently they've patched it up since, but it was tense on the set between the two of them. Interesting. Not what you want in a romance. No, I did not know that. And uh, but you know, it's funny is is you know, whenever I hear something like that, I'm always a little bit disappointed. I'm like, this is one of my more childish in, in inclinations. Like, I would just want all actors to get along on set for some reason. Mm-hmm. Why can't the rich folks just get along on set? <laughs> uh, but I did not know that. That's interesting. She's good too. I liked her in this film. <sighs> She's great. She's great. And you know, it, it's it's fascinating because. Um, I'm always weary of Americans and British accents. <laughs> I was always like, "Uh-oh, <laughs> you know what? What are we going to get here?" Uh, but it she it, it worked really well, and she's she played Mina quite well. And I think you know it's interesting because Mina gets played and portrayed in different ways in different you know adaptations, both in film and in books, because Mina becomes a character that 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 translates throughout all these different iterations of Dracula on the screen on stage in, in novels and so on um she isn't a a wilting violet you know she is 
in a lot of ways a stronger character than than Jonathan Harker uh, and some of the of the men. Which again, I mean, again for a 19th century book, it's actually fairly progressive and it's ahead of its time in some ways, uh, and that's one of them. And and in this film, she isn't exactly a kind of passive object. Uh, she she does have some agency and some complexity, and uh, I'm glad that that was part of it. And probably again, we know the 90s weren't as progressive as we might think, go back and watch some stuff from the nineties and you see that, you know, there are things now go back and watch friends, you know, you know, watch friends from not even that long ago and think, my God, I mean, what were people consuming even 25 years ago? Um, you know, it's truly something, but she, she's a, you know, a, a complex and active character and it's, and she plays it really, really well. And I guess at the time she's also coming off of Beetlejuice uh, which must have made her just a, you know, a fan favorite pick and, and an obvious pick, I think, for casting folks because um, she she encapsulated that that uh, kind of vibe so so well. Another fantastic movie, incidentally, one of my first film memories. <laughs> um, um, but also has a way of of of, of uh, you know leading without eating up the entire stage you know Mm -hmm. she is also very uh crucial to coppola even making this movie she was cast in godfather 3 as mary corleone but she uh was basically she left the movie uh i think they hadn't even started filming yet when she got to italy she apparently went to rest in her hotel room and was said to be suffering from heat exhaustion which is i think a euphemism but she uh, was just in no shape to make the movie. Her boyfriend was Johnny Depp at the time. Oh my Lord. Anyway, she was in no shape to make the movie and she left and was replaced by Sophia Coppola. And then of course, when it came out and Sophia Coppola got the bad reviews, people were yelling at Winona Ryder for not playing the part and blowing it. Like this would have been a big thing for her. And it's all her fault that we got Sophia Coppola in the movie, you know, sort of thing. So she had, she wanted to clear the air with Francis Coppola and sort of patch things up. So she actually went to meet him after Godfather three came out and she uh, gave him the screenplay for Dracula, which was written by James V Hart, who also wrote hook for Spielberg. And Coppola was a huge fan of the novel Dracula and movies about Dracula. Like Dracula was a big deal for him when he was growing Mm -hmm. up as a kid. And he used to, I think he had a job as a camp counselor and he would read the kids uh, Dracula to try to make them go to sleep. But instead it scared them all. (laughs) I was going to say he was very interested in making this movie. And Winona Ryder actually tried to get Johnny Depp to play Jonathan Harker, but they went for the big name for box office. They wanted teens to go and see this movie and, they weren't sure about Johnny Depp, but they were sure about Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. And and we should talk for a few minutes about Reeves in this movie because he's historically been made fun of for being in this film. Terrible English accent. He can't act his way out of a paper bag. He's out of his league against Gary Oldman, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I want to mount a meager defense of Keanu Reeves in this movie. I want to hear it. The Jonathan Harker character as even Coppola has admitted, is kind of weak out of all of the main characters in Dracula. He's got the sort of the bimbo role, <laughs> relatively speaking, like he doesn't have much to do. Um, and he has that incredible uh, scene where he goes to Dracula's castle 
and because uh, he's getting he, he's bringing him some papers to sign in Transylvania and he has to stay the night at uh, Dracula's house. And I think it's really funny that uh, Harker's too dumb to th- realize that he's got to get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the fact that Keanu Reeves plays him as kind of like a, a deer lost in the woods is a good decision. Uh, Harker is a weak character. And, you know, incidentally, the, the creepiest part of the, of the novel is that, section which which uh, occupies a good chunk of the first part of the book when harker is in castle dracula and he's there to settle the carfax estate and he gets effectively trapped there he becomes a prisoner and it's truly truly scary in the novel i mean it's 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 a big part of it um but he you know reading the novel much like watching the film you're thinking what are you doing? You just keep saying, what, 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 how do you think this is going to go? You know, there's a scene in the film where he says, he's talking to the solicitor, his boss, he's a lawyer. And he says, you know, well, what happened to Renfield who went ahead of me to, to Transylvania? He's like, Oh, he had, you know, personal issues. He's like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> off I go. Um, and then he, you know, at some point he realizes he's not going anywhere and he's going to get stuck. Um, but then he sort of just sort of gives himself into it. And then later he sort of miraculously is like, Oh, never mind. I actually have to get out of here after all and, and finds his way out. Um, mm-hmm. But he, it's all sort of incidental because, you know, everyone else is driving the plot along uh, without him. And he's, he is a fairly weak character. And, and I, you know, it's funny is I think Keanu Reeves, it kind of like Nicholas Cage, there are these actors, you look at them and think, well, there are certain films I couldn't imagine with anybody else. I don't know if this is one of them for him, but like, for instance, the John Wick movies, I can't imagine anybody else as John Wick. I mean, I've got a big defense of John Wick that I, that I like to make. And one of them is that it's maybe one of the best choreographed productions of anything that I've ever seen. I mean, it's like, it's, I like to think of it. I say it's, you know, it's ballet for people who are like violence, right? It's effectively a violent ballet and Keanu Reeves sells it extraordinarily well. I, I think he sells the Harker character extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily well too. Um, you know, Johnny Depp uh, j- wouldn't have been able to do that; it would have been a different film. And you know, obviously, there's all lots, lots, and lots of other Johnny Depp problems. But I mean, just bracketing that because there's a different, you know, imagining it's it's the '90s and we don't know what's to come. Um, mm. That's just a different kind of broody, um, uh, frankly obnoxious kind of iteration of Harker that I don't think would have worked for this. The other knock on Reeves's performance is that his English accent is sounds like he's in a high school play. Like he, he you know, he, it's so mannered, and he's trying so hard to do the English accent that that it may come across as bad acting. But take a look at the big picture of this movie. Like this movie is over the top in in every respect: in art direction, in costume design, in performance you need something to hang on to <laughs> and you know what I mean? So to have a sort of d- dumb dimwit uh, in the film is kind of a kind of grounding device in a way like that, you know, you might uh, like, I don't have a huge problem with his performance in the movie. Like it, you know, he's funny in the film. It's it's a lighter element. And also I, I think, I don't think I would have wanted a stronger Harker character in the movie like that, because I, I think the movie isn't really a, about him. 
and, and this one certainly wasn't. I mean, this one ended up being a f- ultimately kind of a love story about Mina Harker and, and Dracula in large part. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, having a stronger Harker would have probably wouldn't have worked uh, like that. In fact, you know, it makes me think as the film ends, spoiler alert here, folks, it's been out 30 years. So you've had your time, but if, if for whatever reason you don't want to spoil it, now's your chance to take a break. Um, but you know, at the end of the film, when they, they get to the sort of the, the gates of castle Dracula and they've killed off all of the uh, Dracula's legions of living people and dead um, undead, they get to the door and, and, and she's about to go in and Mina's about to go in with Dracula and they sort of look at each other and say, no, no, she's got to finish this. Our job is done here. And it's ultimately Mina who finishes the job and ends the story. Um, a stronger Harker doesn't work with that because it's his job there to say, oh, I've got nothing left to do here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, it's important to have someone like that. And um, I, I don't know, it, it worked for me. There's one touch that I thought was very funny in the movie that I think some people misunderstood as bad was when all of a sudden Jonathan Harker has white hair. <laughs> like, and it know. keeps getting whiter. Yeah. Like there's a couple stages of it. Yeah. But that's, um, isn't that a, a Victorian trope of like somebody <laughs> being scared so much that their hair turns white? Yeah. And, and actually incidentally something that does happen. I mean, it's not like you see something, you get scared, you wake up the next day and your hair is white, but, but I mean, there are stress reactions and fear that, that, that do produce that sort of thing. But, but yeah, it is, it is an old tropey thing in, in film and in novels. Um, but it harkens back to, uh, the origins of cinema, which this movie is also a loving tribute to, like they did it the hard way in this movie. Mm-hmm. They used video technology to do tests on ideas that they had to, for, uh, you know, shots and effects. They tried out everything on video, but when it came to shooting the movie, not only did they shoot the film on film, but they used all sorts of tricks of the trade from the early days of cinema to, to, to that had not been attempted in Hollywood movies ever since visual special effects arrived on the scene. Like a lot of the things that they're doing in this movie, you wouldn't see anybody do outside of an experimental film class. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember reading one thing about it's like literal smoke and mirrors, right? One of the pieces I was reading was like literally, literally smoke and, and mirrors mm-hmm. and, and likened it to a, to a stage production. And um, again, it gives it a kind of, you know, authenticity and lasting staying power that, that it might not otherwise have had. I think it would have been very easy to make this movie in a way that kind of like by 2000, 2002, 2003, it would have been stale and forgotten and extremely cringeworthy. Right. I mean, there could have been a way to do that. They could have tried to go, you know, all avatar on it. And um, that would have been that. But for this movie, they, they filmed the entire movie on a soundstage including exteriors <laughs> yeah it's pretty strange <laughs> i mean there are there are a couple moments you know like towards the end when they're um fighting they're on the way to fight dracula the sort of third act and it's meant to be in the winter in transylvania you look the snow doesn't look snowy and there are those moments of that but again my thing was like i don't i don't care that isn't a problem for me that doesn't affect the quality of the film that's not a big deal. It had they tried to do CGI, that would have though, right? Because it just would have been and looked trash. And I also think that decision probably forced them to 
to try to tell the story in a in a particular way, in a way that you don't have to think about when you do CGI. You're just like, oh, I'll let the computer decide what, what the world's going to be. And this, you know, they've got Dracula's, uh, you know, there's a scene where, where Jonathan's crossing the into Transylvania to go see Dracula for the first time. And Dracula's, you know, eyes appear up in the cloud to look over him. And it's, you know, pretty, pretty spooky. Um, and, you know, it was, again, like you say, it was a camera effect. Uh, I, I guess double filmed, whatever they call it. Um, and, but, but I mean, again, it becomes part of the story because it's building this tension. Let me tell you how they did that. Because okay, that good. was my, that was my main question during that fantastic uh, scene where Jonathan's traveling by train to Transylvania. So first they built a, a, a set with a horizon on it, like, you know, 10 feet away or some miniature mountains. And then the foreground was a different, you know, uh, leaves and, you know, rocks that would go at a different speed as the train was going. And they put the train on a dolly and went across and filmed that. Then they wound the film back in the camera, turned out the lights on the set and then filmed the pair of eyeballs over the shot that they had already captured. Ah. Then they transferred that to film and they built the set that Keanu Reeves is sitting in, in the train, which they were shaking. It was on springs. And then they rear screen projected that shot out the window. And it was all in camera, but it, it took several stages and it's seamless and it's dreamlike. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that Coppola was really trying to channel into in this movie was the subconscious and the dream world and even the nightmare world. Apparently, some of the advice that he was giving to the costume designers and the art directors was to keep it weird, like to make sure that it's always weird. And Coppola said to his staff, like, if you have a terrible nightmare, tell me all about it (laughs) because it'll inform. Maybe we'll get some ideas. And all the incredible costumes that Aiko Ishioka designed for this movie, it's like a nonstop fashion show of incredible costumes renfield's costume in the uh sanitarium is incredible mm-hmm. and they won uh, this was a they took an oscar for this right for costume mm-hmm. pretty sure i mean it's it's and well deserved i mean this is the thing is is that um like plainly they 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 cared a lot about the aesthetic and and they didn't decide to sort of phone anything in on on a on a costume it wasn't like okay well pop on this you know, this green soup and these ball, you know, we'll, we'll fix it in post. You know? Yeah. Uh, like a ton of, of design and thought went into it and, and it paid off. It really did pay off. I mean, it, it truly ended up being um, visually quite stunning. And I, I was thinking about the eyes. I think you know, had, had you had the CGI technology and tried it, it would have looked worse, right? At least, uh, especially for what they're trying to do. There's one effect that I, I, don't, I know nothing about, but I was, but I was curious to know more about, which is uh, on a handful of times, the, the frame rate changes and the the filter changes. And there's a few subtle filter changes or, 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 or pe- color palette changes, I should say, throughout the film that are actually really subtle but interesting. But the, the thing I'm thinking of is, you know, the, the frame rate changes and it looks like an old, um, you know, early days of Hollywood, someone cranking the film style as a kind of, maybe that's a bit of an homage. I don't know, but it's, it, it really fits the moment and the different, those different styles that are integrated into the different, you know, uh, moments of the film were very effective. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you how they did that because that was one of my other questions when I was watching the movie. Uh, Coppola had an old path, a camera from the, from the 1910s uh, as part of his c- collection. So he had a working path, a camera 
a hand cranked <laughs> one and they put film into it and they used it on the set. So they got all the extras into period detail and they, you know, they built uh, the street that they were walking on, but they had modern cranes, which, you know, any kind of like a crane shot in the old days of film would have been very tentative because the cameras of course weighed a zillion pounds. Yeah. Right. And this camera was heavy. Now they have modern camera cranes. So they descended down on that shot and there was the, the cameraman is literally cranking the camera as he's filming. Like you have no idea whether or not you're going to get results. That's what I I mean. They obviously had done camera tests, but like this is, you know, there's an insurance bond on this movie and uh, (laughs) people are using like an old path, a camera from 1910 to, to as a principal photography. It's crazy. You know, the, you know, the life aquatic, um, you know, there's the insurance stooge is one of the characters in life aquatic is always sort of there. And it's like, I can imagine the insurance stooge just on, <laughs> on set being like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> what are you filming this with? Why is your cameraman uh, whistling a waltz to himself while he's cranking? Cause that's what they would do to maintain the speed of the crank. Cause they like sing a little tune to themselves. Oh my Lord. I guess one of the things I find compelling about the the film and the effects and the different modes is that they're not egregious, right? And, and you know, it's sort of, it's there, it fits the moment and they move on and do something else. It's not like, you know, they overdo it. So I, I found that that was pretty interesting too. The other shot that blew my mind was that shot during the montage on the train where Jonathan's writing in his diary and we see the the book with the train traveling in the background with the big smoke in the air that yeah. the, and you can see the shadow of the smoke over the pages. Do you know how they did that? I don't. I was before you before you tell me because I want to know. I'll just say the diary thing is really important and and the film often, you know, presents it as a series of diaries that are being read. Uh, but that's the book. The novel is is exactly that. The novel is diaries and and diaries from different perspectives. And it's uh, you know it works extraordinarily well. So the diary thing ends up being really really important as as part of the of uh, some adherence to the original novel. So it's it's great. But uh, yeah. So but how does it work? How did they do it? So how they did it was it's a miniature train. They built a giant twenty foot wide recreation of a diary, and oh they and they put it several feet away from the camera. So that sequence is a real shot of a book that is from forced perspective, making it look like it's right in front of our face, but it's actually far away and a gigantic book with a little model train traveling at the, on the top of the page. I Incredible. wonder what happened to it. I would, I, I, I want to own this giant 20 foot. <laughs> Jonathan Harker diary. Page. Jonathan Harker diary page. I, 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 you know, stuff like that to me is just so fascinating. It, 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 again, and, um, I, I mean, I guess here's the thing: like when you when you can go through a movie like this and say, you know, there's there's a handful of different scenes and shots, and and that you can deconstruct and tell a different sort of story about from the next. Mm-hmm. It gives it all of these these layers that you don't necessarily get right with other with other movies. So I, I yeah. think that's that's fantastic. And the duck soup part where Keanu's shaving and. Uh... Dracula's behind him and they've tricked us to make it look like he's looking into a mirror, but it's actually a window. And there's somebody who looks Keanu's in the window and there's a body double doing the shaving because Dracula's behind him. 
And yeah. we can see Dracula's hand over his shoulder, but in the mirror, we don't see anybody behind him. It's because they tricked us. Oh, that's interesting. And in keeping with vampire lore, right? Because this idea is that they can't uh, see their, you don't see the reflection in a mirror. Yeah. So this film was shot by the great Michael Bauhaus, who was Fassbender and Scorsese's cameraman. And uh, he was always good at everything that he did. But this is one of his finest achievements in terms of his control of light and color and and being able to integrate uh, these practical effects. Like his, he and his camera team, and in coordination with the visual effects team, who, by the way, was Roman Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola fired the visual effects people when he started to get further into the project because he 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 said that he felt that the visual effects people were trying to get him to make it their way when he wanted to make it his own way so and he wanted to use old film techniques they were telling him it's too expensive it's too time consuming and he was like okay then you're all fired <laughs> good for him <laughs> yeah good i'm now this is one of the few times i'm in favor of management firing labor yeah, every so often there's, you know, there is a creative trump card. When this movie came out, it had bad vibes next to it because The Godfather 3 was sort of a relative disappointment. This seemed like uh, a movie that the was apparently not testing well with audiences and people were saying it was too expensive and they were saying that it was too violent and gory and too weird to succeed in the marketplace. Well, yeah, this is this is one of the, the tags that I got from I think it was Vanity Fair. You know, bonfire of the van, uh, bonfire of the vampires after the bonfire of the vanities, um, which it could very easily have been. It was being looked at before it was released as a huge bomb in the making, and Coppola had already had a bomb uh, in the eighties with one from the heart, and his studio American Zoetrope was in a lot of financial trouble at this point. Uh, he one of the reasons why he did The Godfather Three was because the last couple of movies that he'd made that were very expensive, like Tucker with Jeff Bridges, were financial failures. So he did Godfather Three kind of for the money, and and then with that money he made Dracula, and people sort of still had it in for him. And then the movie shut everybody up. It was a huge mm. hit. Everybody liked it. But another thing that I wanted to talk with you about is the incredible soundtrack on this film from the Polish composer Wojciech Kilar. Such beautiful, sumptuous music. Yeah, and I just, you know, I, I think to make a movie like this work, you need uh, like good atmospheric effects, and part of that obviously is the visuals that we discussed, and part of it is the costumes, uh, is part of the visuals. Obviously, they, you know, that has to work, and then the other thing is you need a good score. I mean, it just makes all the difference. I think, you know, a good score is, is something that is uh, ever present, but doesn't kind of dominate, right? It's just, it, it, it frames the background, but it doesn't become the whole piece itself. And when I think of, of, uh, you know, films where the score has really, to me, done its job i mean this is this is one of them but also we'll talk about this another another day the brothers bloom is really good for this too um so so uh, nathan johnson in the brothers bloom and in, in uh, knives out has done just such a good job at at, at, at 
you know, scoring a film in a way that fits the, the, the feel of it in the moment perfectly. And that, that's what we get in, in Dracula as well. And again, it would have been very easy to go over the top <laughs> and spoil it, right? Mm-hmm. That would have been very, very easy to do. Um, that sort of like big, heavy Baroque, you know, Bach or, you know, you could have done, could have ended up as the Munsters. Yeah. No, now there's anything around the Munsters, but it's a different thing. Um, and, and it, and it didn't. And, and I think that there's a certain subtlety to it that, that made a big difference. The movie's never above the material. It does. It's not condescending to the material. Like it's taking it at face value. It wants to be romantic and swooning and, and scary and spooky. You know, it's very committed. It is. And, and I think that there's like an earnestness about that, that I think really translates. And I, I quite like that. And, um, you know, I, I, we watched it ahead of this. I'd watched it when I was young. I'd watched it a couple of times since. I think this would have been, the, but not in several years. It's been quite a long time since I've seen it. So I wasn't sure, you know, how's that going to, how's that going to watch? And if, if anything, it, it plays better having, knowing what came after it than it did when I saw it at, at the time when I, you know, would have been, I, I don't, I don't recall seeing it when it came out, but I probably would have seen it around the time I saw Jurassic Park, maybe slightly after I would have been something like between eight and 10 years old, <laughs> probably slightly too young, but, but you know, it's fine. Um, and um, I, I wonder how, I, I just remember the impression of, of, of I had then being like deeply fascinated with the legend of Dracula after having watched it. I mean, it does, here's one of the things that it does extraordinarily well, whether you come at it with a knowledge of, of vampires and of the history of, of the genre of Dracula or not, it leaves you wanting more of, of Dracula and more of, of the genre. It does that very well. It does a service to the history and to the genre mm-hmm. and to the novel in that sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Aside from, as some people have pointed out, I would imagine Bram Stoker would have had some problems with it because he was sort of Victorian and prudish. Right? <laughs> but that's a different problem. That's fine. Yeah. You can see all the hard work that goes into making something like Dracula. If you have an education in film production, it's even more interesting. Like you can see the technique, but you can also enjoy it as entertainment. Exactly. And, you know, I think about it in terms of, you know, comparing to, to big budget, blockbusters now that are done heavily if not almost entirely you know digitally and with with computers is that there's a certain painstaking craft to that too but it falls to the big studios of folks on computers who are going you know frame by frame and retouching everything every little pixel every little bit that's that's also painstaking but in a very different way right i think there's a real it's almost like you know an artisan production versus kind of a, a, a of a mass production mentality right mm-hmm. um so I, I think there's a distinction that, that that's important because you know i've known folks who've worked in uh, you know movies today and boy that's a lot of work too but it's a very different kind of a lot of work <laughs> yeah you're overworked as opposed to you can see the craftsmanship and care and joy that went into it it seems to be like oh i can see that uh, the had to render this effect for three days because it was yes. complex. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they had, you know, 40 different people like working late until the night, touching yeah. up all these different things. I'm like, wow, that's a different thing. 
So you'll recall that everyone got mad at Scorsese for trashing Marvel movies. And they asked Coppola what he thought about his comments. And this is a very funny quote. When Martin Scorsese says that the Marvel pictures are not cinema, he's right. Because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain something, some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. I don't know if anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over again. Martin was just being kind when he said it's not cinema. He didn't say it's despicable, <laughs> which I just said. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that, tra- that tracks. <laughs> well, Koppel is a guy who, you know, at the very least you can say about him is he's always worked on a very personal level. His movies come from him. Mm-hmm. You know, like nobody else could do a, a Francis Ford Coppola movie. This movie was done with one of his sons as his visual effects supervisor. And, you know, he's he's dealt with uh, the story of his family many times in movies, and he's been very supportive of his children's films, you know, like, so, you know, when he sees a Marvel movie, he doesn't see any authorship to it. And, and that might be what bothers him about it. But I like that he points out that, you know, movies come from someone. They don't come from something. It's true. And it's funny to say that. It makes me think of, uh, I'm a big fan of Community. And there's a great scene in one of the seasons where they're talking, they keep making Marvel jokes, right? And they're kind of inside jokes because there's a relationship between those folks and, and the Marvel's folks and some in community people show up in the marvel films but you know the the guy that plays the the cop that recurring character says you guys excited about the new marvel movie i hear they really pen josh weeded in creatively uh, so you know can't go wrong there <laughs> and uh, you know it just to me it's such a great little dig on the on the whole series right because um the, you know once the studio gets a hold of it as a property that it's just going to milk Mm-hmm. then then of course it's no longer the creation of, of a single person who wants to tell a story it's the sort of maintenance of a intellectual property and this isn't this isn't that right the movie it, very plainly this was not a movie that again could have been done to sell a bunch of dracula figures right it could have been done mm-hmm. to create a, a series it could have been done with the the idea that a sequel you know you'd have dracula dracula's daughter you know, Dracula's, the child of Dracula or Dracula's bride or whatever um, you know it, and all of that soon came after in film right I mean that that kind of mentality really took a hold just a couple of years later so it, it, it sort of avoided I, I kind of partly thinks this was the perfect time to make it this movie as well you know it was you probably couldn't have made it the same way or too, too many years earlier and a, and a few years later while well, you, you get something very different, right? You, you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'd be in so much ratings trouble for this movie now that he wouldn't have had to face in the early nineties. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think plus, especially in the, in the digital, in the internet age too, it would have been, I mean, uh, imagine that kind of like bonfire of the vampires treatment ahead yes in 2022 I, I don't know if he would have been able to come back from that right i mean yeah i mean look you know just like the internet killed morbius right <laughs> r.i.p to a legend yeah. david who's your favorite screen vampire do you have one my favorite screen vampire oh this is a really good question not really although the i really like wesley snipes and blade <laughs> <laughs> like it's just so good and it's such a 
it's it's i mean the concept i mean it you know it comes it precedes the movie but it but it um it's such a great concept and execution so it's it's hard not to to love blade also it's got chris christopherson in the movie as a film like and it's got chris christopherson but uh but i i truly truly like that but uh i i do think you know it's funny it's for me gary oldman has become when I think vampire and Dracula, I do now picture Gary Oldman with the big Buffon hair or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Because that to me is sort of framed a lot of my thinking of vampires. Um, but it's, it's fascinating because I mean, I was just telling you about the, the globe piece I was writing. So I read a bunch of vampire stuff for that. And um, it's become now a kind of like cottage industry. It became oversaturated for a period of time in the sort of aftermath of Twilight. But now I think there could be a bit of a vampire renaissance post post twilight post all of that. So we may get some interesting ones. Again, I mean, there's lots on TV now already. Mm-hmm. We may get some more. There's even Sherlock Holmes and Dracula. I mean, as a book, um, incidentally, a movie I would love to watch. But um, yeah, I, I gotta say, I mean, Christopher Lee has is also just great because it's Christopher Lee. But uh, the the. I I I gotta I think I gotta get give the edge to Blade. Yeah, I agree. Christopher Lee is my answer. Uh, Blade is. I guarantee there will be a Blade episode of this podcast. I don't know when. That'll be a good one. Yeah, I have many thoughts about Blade. David, before we wrap things up. I wanted to commiserate with you about the shit show that's going on in Ottawa where you live. Oh yeah. And our Always. premier, our premier pretending that Ottawa, that Ottawa is not in his jurisdiction. <laughs> Tell my listeners a little bit about what's going on here. It's the aftermath of the convoy <sighs> trucker protest. They're, they're, they're looking into the government's use of the emergency act. This is a, this was already part of the, decision to declare the act was that this would be a, a, a follow-up procedure at the conclusion. Yeah. So real quick, the emergencies act replaced the, the much more draconian war measures act, which went back to the first world war. The, the emergencies act replaced it in the, in the 1980s under the Mulroney government. And the idea was, well, you needed some sort of legislation for public emergencies, but we don't want something as draconian as and blunt as the world measures act where you suspend civil liberties. So we get the emergencies act <clears throat> Part of the stipulation is that if you use it, you have to have a commission of inquiry after the fact, and we're going to have a look at how it went, uh, sort of debriefing. And that's exactly what this is. First time the act's been used, first time we've seen uh, the resulting commission. And they asked Doug Ford to come and serve as a witness in front of this. And, you know, Justin Trudeau is going to go. Uh, you know, all the police chiefs, the former police chiefs going to go. Lots of, has has gone, rather. Lots. Everyone said yes. Uh, Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones have said no. <laughs> and they're citing parliamentary privilege. Basically says, you know, well, we're not going because we don't have to go. There's no substantive reason for them not to go. It's not like they don't time. It's not like they think it's not their business. Their answer is we just don't have to go. It's it's a federal act. This is what Paul Calandra, the House leader, says in the House. Uh, it's a federal act. It's everything the federal government has nothing to do with us. Um if we're being super, 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 super charitable to Doug Ford, which he doesn't deserve, you would say, well, you know, look, the, the goal of this uh, inquiry is actually to figure out whether the use of the act was necessary. 
And maybe you could say, well, that has nothing to do with Doug Ford. The fact is, it has everything to do with Doug Ford because you don't need to use the act unless everyone else has failed, <laughs> including yeah. Doug Ford. Uh, so it's it's pretty greasy that he's not going, but he's a pretty greasy dude. Is he allowed to just not go? Can he be compelled to go? I doubt it. Um, I, I doubt that he can, can be compelled. And parliamentary privilege is not immutable. It can be limited, but it... it um, has you know routinely been reviewed by the courts for both federal and, and provincial purpose, and uh, they're going to give a lot of latitude to the legislatures because it's a fundamental principle of, of Westminster parliamentary democracy that you know parliaments get to govern themselves, and you know parliamentary privilege is an important part of making sure that members of the legislature have the freedom to say what they need to say to govern their their political entity, province, or federal or country, whatever it may be. So I, I don't think there's any chance he's going to be compelled to appear. Uh, parliamentary privilege will stand up. It's dirty. It's, you know, he should have to appear. He should be morally sanctioned, but I, I, I doubt there's any legal recourse, but it's a giant waste of time and money to fight it. <laughs> now, is, is, is his reticence to go because he doesn't respect the process. Is it because he's afraid of what he'd have to admit under oath? Like, what is his what is his motivation for not going beyond stupidity? I think actually, I think it's like you know, stupid like a fox. I, I think that he, he must be aware that there's zero upside for him showing up. Zero, zero. There's no good that will come of it. I'm sure someone somewhere, maybe himself have you know did the calculus here's what's going to cost us politically and morally in the court of public opinion to say no here's what's going to cost us if we go and it's way higher if you go because what they're going to find is he screwed up big time he was useless and that's he doesn't want that in an inquiry you know because then that becomes a story for days whereas if he decides not to go uh, it's a story for a little while but it's much more salacious and probably has a much longer shadow if he does go. So therefore you don't go. And again, it's morally, I think, you know, inappropriate, but politically, strategically, probably the right decision. You know, and even if he did go, like what, you know, what kind of uh, candor would you be able to expect from him anyway? I, I, I can imagine it we would learn less than, than we might hope. I mean, you know, I can imagine him showing up and then effectively, you know, behaving as if it would have been better for everyone if he just didn't show up, right? And like, mm-hmm. Because again, it's just, there's no upside to him showing up and telling the truth. And, and also, I mean, him and Justin Trudeau are now trying to put on a, a fairly amicable post-convoy, uh, you know, buddy cop movie. <laughs> but... If you look at the at, at what we're learning from the commission is that basically the federal government said Ontario has completely fucked this up. They're useless. They blew it. And Doug Ford screwed up. And that was the position of the federal government privately. So it's probably a little bit embarrassing for him to. <laughs> I mean, at some point, Doug Ford came out and said, you know, you guys, this is too much, right? I mean, there, there were... Um, as did you know a handful of conservatives by the way who just said like okay everybody go go home yeah so I, I you know there there probably were some folks in that government who were sympathetic I just think they didn't think it was their problem 
you know, like, well, what are we going to do? Let's, mm. you know, Ottawa, is that in Ontario? Like, who, you know, who's, and, and I think you look now and you see that the story of the occupation was a combination of incompetence um, and sympathy for the, for the occupiers, but like an awful lot of incompetence, an awful lot of incompetence mm-hmm. and, and very poor coordination between the, the three levels of government who are involved. Slightly more than three levels because you had the National Capital Commission in Ottawa. You had, you know, different levels of police. It was a whole giant thing. And it's just like, you know, it was nobody had any idea who was in charge. It was farcical. And um, I I think it was largely incompetence, to be honest. When I saw that happening, I was like, this is just giving anybody who wants to fuck with the Canadian nation state uh, uh tips on how to do it like if anybody wanted to organize themselves oh to, yeah like, do a terror attack they now yeah. know what the vulnerabilities are well I, I i was saying at the time that the the convoy had effectively weaponized federalism right i mean deliberately or otherwise and probably deliberately uh, you know the folks came in and and uh managed to say well the federal government federal government municipal government are so disorganized and and communicate so poorly that we could just do whatever we want <laughs> you know who's going to stop us yeah. that's exactly what ended up happening uh, to credit them after the fact I mean, there were two other attempts where folks were coming to town in the aftermath of this in the same spirit and they shut those both down real fast right yeah. and the, well, one, one they shut down the other they weather. directed in such a way yeah the summer one and there was a winter one too but you know they 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 were very careful to make sure it didn't happen again. I mean, I was here so I could see, you know, they were on the highways, you know, you're coming into town, they were checking folks, they were making sure they were not allowing trucks to go into. Here's the thing, you know, if you don't allow the trucks to go and park in downtown Ottawa, then you don't have the occupation like this, right? They allowed these trucks to come and come and blockade the parliamentary precinct in large parts of downtown and center town. If you don't allow that, then this doesn't happen. And so in subsequent attempts, they're just like, no, 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 no. In the same way that DC, you know, in the aftermath of January 6th and the Ottawa occupation, had the same folks coming or similar folks coming, and they just said, no, 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 you're not coming in. Yeah. Uh, so there were some lessons learned. And I, I do like to think that when this is all said and done, we actually did learn some lessons and did change some things. I mean, in Wellington Street, which is, runs in front of Parliament, which is where a lot of the trucks were parked, is now shut down to traffic, which incidentally, a lot of people like me and a lot of urbanists and a lot of city folks really wanted for a long time. So big yeah. thanks to the occupiers who finally got something nice, which is, you know, a pedestrian section of Wellington. Um, but um, so there were, there were lessons learned. And someday we will learn a future lesson about the, the brilliance and um, uh, uh, eternal watchability of the brothers bloom. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to stay on this forever. I, one of these days, we're going to have a Brothers Bloom, Bloom episode, and I'm so excited because I'll just tease it here right now. We'll get really people are really excited. I think it's one of the most fantastic movies of all time. It's, it's, it's top five for me, and I cannot for the life of me understand why, why anybody disagrees with me. We're definitely going to do it. Um, when David and I were chatting about a Brothers Bloom episode, I said, will you commit now? to a brief discussion on The Last Jedi, and then uh, David said, okay, forget it. 
I will even talk about The Last Jedi. I've thought about it. I will even talk about The Last Jedi. And it's funny because it's not even like, I don't think people who disagree with me are wrong or stupid or ignorant. I come at this from the genuine, genuinely perplexed position of, I don't understand why other people don't feel the way I do. And I want to (laughs) know. I want to know. This is what the, the podcast is all about, David. I'm giving people forums to make the case but I bet the Brothers Bloom is good. Uh, it's just you haven't gotten it through to enough people that it's good yet. So I'm giving you that opportunity. I, I would love to. It, it's also incidentally a Robbie Coltrane movie. So um, there it is. There you go. There's there is a hook. There's there's an angle. David, do you want to tell my listeners about your Substack? I would love to. So I just launched this recently because I wanted to try to do slightly different things than I'm able to do in, in other places. Uh, long form deep dives into to issues where I can explore them how I want at the length I want. And so every Tuesday, there's going to be one of those. Uh, the first one was about why you should care about politics and economics. The next one is going to be about uh, co-leadership as part of this ideas and democracy series I'm doing. And then I'm going to have a, uh, a monthly podcast where I sit down with someone to talk about how they work because I'm obsessed with with the routines and rituals of how people produce the things that they produce, the creative folks. And so there's going to be a little podcast and we're going to spin out some new stuff as we go. And uh, I ended up with um, uh, several hundred people on the first day. And it's about a weekend now since I announced it, I think. I'm trying to think of when I did that. And um, I'm approaching a thousand subscribers. So it's really flying. Many of them uh, are paying subscribers. So people have been wonderful. And I think there's a, a good little community there and some value. So I hope people will check it out. Fantastic. I'll put a link to it in the show description for the show. And David, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at David underscore Mosscroft. I am, I post early, I post often. So come and, and be a part of that discussion about the brothers bloom defense <laughs> league, um, which will soon become a, a glass onion defense league too. I suspect. Uh, when that movie comes out in a couple of months. Yeah. Less than a couple of months. It's out, I guess. Thanksgiving, you know, American Thanksgiving. So, uh, oh, my Lord. Later, a month from now, basically. Well, you know what the great thing about that is that it's a murder mystery that isn't um, the, the Agatha Christie reboot. So, you know that there's at least something. Yeah. <laughs> did you do a show on that one? Did you do a show uh, on those? Th- on the Brana ones? No, I did. Yeah? I did a show <laughs> on Belfast, but I haven't done the. Poirot's. Oof. I like the Peter Ustinov Poirot's. Yeah, the Peter Ustinov ones are great. Yeah. Well, David Moskrop, thank you so much for joining me. You are welcome to come and talk about the Brothers Bloom next time with me. Anytime. Name it and I'm there. My Tomor- pleasure. Tomorrow, it's, it's maybe. Pleasure. We'll record <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> I, I could do it. I, I, I'm ready to go with a drop of a hat. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons help to make Junk Filter possible. To become a patron and to receive access to bonus episodes every month, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. Our next episode will be about a controversial figure, David O. Russell. Matthew Perpetua and I are going to be talking about American Hustle and Amsterdam. The original music for this program was provided by Mark Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you for listening.